I actually have quite a few family members who don't know what podcasting is. And so they're like, you make podcasts, what does that mean? I've heard the word, I don't get it. Yes. And I'm like, it's kind of like listening to the radio, but it's not live. And they're like, right, so do you have to go into the radio? I'm like, no, 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 I stay at home in my bedroom. And then, they, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> wonders of the internet. I stick some headphones on and I get a microphone and I sit on my bed. Right, and they're like, well, what have you got to talk about, Emily? That's what they say to me. So maybe that's not the best analogy that I could be using. I don't know, though, because we have amazing things to say, so maybe they're just underestimating us. Maybe they are. Here's another one. Hmm. Imagine documentary making, but there's no video and it's on your phone, so you listen. Yeah. I like to think of it as I'm releasing an album, but it's not quite so musical as it is, like, informative and, like, saving the world. I think we still have work to do. Hello and welcome back to The Carbon Removal Show. I'm Tom Braviti. And I'm Emily Swaddle. Thanks for joining us again, lovely listeners. Yes, thank you, thank you. And we have a great episode for you today. The second in our season three exploration of scaling up the carbon removal industry. Yep, and we're really back in the groove with this season three now. It's kind of like when you're making pancakes and the first one is okay, but the second one is chef's kiss. Sounds like you're hungry, Emily. Though the first one was pretty good, I would say. <laughs> the first one was pretty good, but I'm telling you, this one is going to be mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> I mean, I am hungry. I'm always hungry for pancakes, especially. But this reference was going beyond the needs of my stomach. I was mm. trying to get us in the headspace for today's episode, Tom, by employing a very clever literary device. I see what you did there, Emily, because today's episode is all about analogies. Exactly. Okay, why don't we dive right in with a language chat? It feels like we haven't done this in a little while. So, Emily, I know how much you love these. My days, I really do. I'm very excited about it. Okay, so an analogy, it's really just a comparison. It's a way of clarifying an idea or a concept by describing something else that has similarities with it. The thing that's used as a comparison is very well known, so it needs little explanation and serves as an explanation itself. We actually use analogies all the time, probably without even thinking about it. So why are we going to be dedicating a whole episode of this Carbon Removal Show podcast to analogies? Well, as we know, carbon removal and its surrounding industry, it's not the simplest thing to understand. And throughout the many episodes that we have released, we've used plenty of analogies to help paint a picture of specific principles around CDR. Tom, cast your mind back to season one, episode one. We were young, naive, hopeful, and pretty much clueless about the carbon removal industry. Do you remember Sophie Purdom talking about a bathtub? We need CDR to just go open up the IPCC reports, right? And the basics on that is uh, basically a bathtub problem of the stock that's in the air right now of greenhouse gases is very high and we need to both turn off the faucet so there's less flowing in but also drain some of the tub. And the way that you drain the water in the tub is by removing it from the atmosphere. How could I forget the good old bathtub analogy? Yeah, it's the oldest analogy in the CDR playbook, really. It comes up everywhere in the carbon removal world, really because it's a nice, simple description of what carbon removal is trying to do. Analogies like this are really useful for explaining the concept of CDR and how it differs from other climate action. 
In particular, it helps to illustrate why we need CDR as well as emissions reductions and other interventions. Although it is a really helpful image, the bathtub comparison also demonstrates how analogies can miss key nuances. For instance, we know that removing CO2 from the atmosphere isn't merely a case of just pulling a plug once. Think of the huge variable when it comes to durability. In a sense, this simplification is fine. Making complex subjects simpler is what analogies are really meant to be doing. But we should be aware that all analogies have flaws and limitations. If only CDR were as simple as pulling a plug, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Now that we've turned our focus to scaling up the carbon removal industry, it is fertile ground for more juicy analogies. Because analogies can provide a precedent when no obvious precedent seems to exist yet. In doing so, they help us to see what might be possible and how it might be done. So we need to move on from the bathtub. Tom, it's time to get out of the bath. (laughs) We need to step out and dry off. Because when we're talking about the challenge of scaling up, we're asking the CDR world to do something that has never, ever been done before. Or has it? So analogies can be powerful things. And they're often an essential element of describing a new product, service or technology to investors, customers and the public by showing how they're similar to things that already exist. A great example of this is Uber. A decade and a half ago, few of us had ever heard of ride sharing as a service and even fewer could imagine it becoming a part of our daily life for literally millions of people all over the world. Mm. Uber's early stage pitch deck, which we've had a look at, described their service as having the convenience of a cab in NYC, but the experience of a professional chauffeur, and compared it to the NetJets of car services. And NetJets is a private jet service for those of us who were just about to look that up. Not something I'd heard of before. It's a pretty good analogy though, right? A great collection of analogies, actually. It paints a very clear picture that highlights the potential of the service to customers. Convenience and affordable but bespoke and personalised. And it also makes for an attractive pitch to investors, a scalable model that makes the advantages of a niche and luxury service available to an enormous existing consumer base, taxi users. That's a lot of heavy lifting for a few little analogies, but it clearly did the job, because I've heard that Uber's done pretty well. Rumour has it. (laughs) And in the early stages of an industry, the kind of language being used in and around the space can also help to determine how we build it and how we scale it. So what role might analogies play in understanding and envisioning the growth of the CDR industry? It really does feel like we need a good analogy for the growth of CDR. You know, this is a young and complex industry. And as we went into last episode, there are a lot of difficulties when we're talking about scaling up. I prescribe one solid analogy to help everyone feel a little less helpless in the face of this challenge. Yeah, a good analogy might go some way in bridging the gap between where we are and where we need to be by demonstrating that there is precedent for overcoming some of these challenges. We're going to use this episode to run through several possible analogies for the growth of the CDR industry. We're going to try them on for size and by the end, you can choose your favourite. But before we get into that, let's just quickly recap the challenges we're talking about so that we know what we need from this miracle analogy cure. Yes, good point. So CDR needs to scale very rapidly. This is especially the case for novel methods, which are starting from a very low bar. These methods need to crank up their capacity by factors of thousands over a couple of decades. 
we know that these projects involve significant capex before the cost curve can really come down. Another challenge, lots of people don't see the direct advantage of CDR, the added value for the buyer. Obviously, this is subjective, and we've already heard from many buyers who do recognise that value. But in terms of scaling, CDR is going to need to become valuable to more buyers. Exactly. What you're talking about here, Emily, is buy-in. Public buy-in is going to be really important for the growth of CDR, not just for buyer motivation, but for policy development too. CDR is going to need to develop alongside and with the support of significant policy intervention. So the public really needs to get on board. It's also just a big operation to scale. There is currently limited infrastructure and supply chains for CDR. So these will need to grow at the same urgent pace as the industry as a whole. Plenty of challenges to ponder. Yeah, loads. So, rapid exponential growth in an undeveloped, complex industry. Where have we seen that before, Emily? Into our first analogy. Okay, I mean, I reckon when it comes to super rapid growth, we need look no further than the palm of our hands or the inside of our pockets. Few technologies or physical products have scaled as rapidly or globally as the smartphone. If we're looking for a steep growth curve, we found it. It's tricky to pick a start date for when smartphones really emerged. There were lots of forerunners to today's products through the late 90s and early noughties, but many will obviously remember the iPhone launching in 2007 as that moment when they seemed to enter the mainstream. Do you know what's so funny? This just makes me think of a quote that allegedly Alexander Graham Bell said, the guy who was credited with first patenting the telephone way back when, when it was just a brand new shiny invention He said, one day, every major city in America will have a telephone. (laughs) Every major city, can you imagine? The scale. (laughs) That was the dream, you know? That was the big, wild dream, is that every major city would have a telephone, and now everyone's got one in their pocket. I just, Hmm. it blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, and here we are ordering taxis on our telephones now. (laughs) Maybe Alexander Graham Bell needed an analogy. Then he maybe could have had bigger dreams for himself. Quite possibly. Anyway, the year that the iPhone launched in 2007, there were 122 million smartphone sales worldwide. Within seven years, that had increased tenfold, and the industry shifts well over a billion units annually. Estimates vary quite a bit, but even some of the lower stats put global smartphone penetration at around 70%, and it seems to be still growing. As a reminder, this is for a product that did not exist a generation ago. Mm. Okay. Well, in the context of carbon dioxide removal, that's great news for our scale-up. The speed of growth here is promising, but what's interesting about smartphones as a comparison is that they haven't just scaled in quantity, but also in quality. Well, yes, quite. From simple phone to smartphone in no time flat. There's a song in there, I feel like. We'll, We'll come back to it. So comparing this back to the CDR case, it helps us highlight how novel CDR methods will need to scale their technology as well as their delivery. For instance, we don't just need to go from tens to thousands of DAC plants over the coming decades. Those facilities also need to go from removing kilotons to megatons. There's lots to be done. Lots indeed. Smartphones obviously aren't the only example of super rapid scaling of consumer products and services that we've seen in recent decades. In some respects, it feels like this is the age we live in. The growth rates of streaming services or social media are other examples that come to mind. 
And in fact, we've heard all of these examples mentioned in conversations about the type of growth curve that's needed for CDR. Okay, so I suppose the scale of growth from these tech examples is promising for the CDR comparison. But that aside, I'm not really sold on these analogies. I think that's a fair opinion. For one, CDR isn't a consumer product. Obviously, growth requires a certain level of public buy-in, as we've mentioned, but it isn't going to be principally driven by consumer demand. Yeah, I mean, it feels like in order to fully integrate into society these days, one needs a smartphone. And although, you know, CDR might be vital for us collectively, I can't imagine it being such an immediate and ubiquitous need for individuals in our day-to-day lives. So maybe we need another analogy that feels more like CDR and maybe looks a bit more like CDR. Next on our whistle-stop analogy tour, renewable energy. This one comes up a lot. It's an obvious one, I guess, and it's a great match on paper. It's climatey. It's also trying to limit atmospheric carbon. So far, so perfect. There is rapid scaling here too. The stories of solar and wind energy and renewable electricity in general have been full of exponential growth over the last two decades. This is partly thanks to falling prices that came from economies of scale and competitive supply chains. The lower price then drives further deployment, which leads to more drops in price and more policy and financial support, and it's a virtuous cycle. Very promising for CDR tech, particularly methods that are at their very earliest stages and have high credit prices right now. This is exactly what they're hoping to do, after all, to bring that cost down. With renewable electricity, though, it hasn't always been on the up and up. I mean, it kind of feels like it took decades to become an overnight success. Yeah, I know what you mean. And that's actually quite common with new technologies. Their growth tends to follow what's known as an S-curve. Slow to take off, then a period of exponential growth, and then it kind of levels off again. And sometimes technologies go through several of these S-curves. CDR is most definitely at the start of its S-curve journey. In a way, that's encouraging, that there's hope the rapid growth will come. But time isn't on our side here. So how do we make sure CDR gets to the next stage quickly and reaches top speed in that accelerated growth phase, and that top speed is fast enough? Very important questions, Emily. One of the elements that really supported the growth of the renewable energy sector was climate policy. Renewable electricity grew partly because it offered a ready supply of energy beyond peak oil. But this was always a long-term view. Just like CDR, work on renewable energy needed to begin decades before it was ever going to offer the energy security or that cheap power that we're starting to see now. So policymakers got involved. They were pioneering innovation by supporting R&D, nudging the market dynamics, etc. In the short and medium term, renewables grew in part because changes were happening in the international policy scape. Countries had to make their energy mix less reliant on fossil fuels, and this helped spur domestic policies to advance renewable energy. I like this analogy. It feels like the renewable electricity industry offers a lot more nuance than the smartphone analogy. But I do still see some issues. Of course, of course. (laughs) The thing is that renewable energy disrupted the energy sector, which is a fully functioning industry that already existed. And renewables came along and just started playing by different rules. CDR is creating a whole new sector. We've invented a whole new game here. Also, everyone understands that we need energy and renewable energy is an alternative to what was already out there. 
So while it's great because it reduces the negative externalities of energy consumption, it also always held the promise that once that cost curve came down, it would be providing a competitive alternative to fossil fuels. The prize from the consumer side was clear from the outset. With CDR, there may not be as clear a motivation for doing it in the first place, so we face a very different challenge when trying to engage buyers and investors and the public. Okay, let's take stock. It's time for a wee break on our analogy tour. Take the weight off for a second, enjoy the view, stretch your whatever needs stretching. Righto. Analogies like smartphones and renewable energy work on the surface, but as soon as we probe a little bit deeper, you realise that they have got some flaws. Both offer useful precedents of rapid and massive scaling. However, ultimately, it does feel as though scaling CDR is in many ways a much bigger challenge. Yes, the thing that came up on all of these analogies so far is that carbon removal isn't something that individuals feel like they can't live without, like their phone or the electricity to power their phone. It's not even something that businesses need as part of their regular operations. It is, however, something we all need as humans and as a planet. There are ways in which businesses would start to feel that need, though. If legislation imposed CDR obligations or if public pressure grew, expectations on companies would necessitate buying into CDR. And the renewable energy example gave us a sense of how policy can nudge that dial in this direction. So we need public and political will to fuel corporate action. But that kind of will comes from passion. And passion isn't going to be ignited by thinking of CDR as a product or a service. No, 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 no. We have to remember that this is a solution to one of humanity's biggest existential crises. Totally. And framing it that way brings us back to questions that we have faced many times before as we've explored the political and ethical complexities of CDR. For instance, it is far from clear who will pay for CDR, either the development of it or its delivery. On whom should this responsibility lie? And importantly, how can we scale in a way that is equitable and just? Yeah, you're right. So I think we need an analogy that takes us beyond the business models and the tech toys. Something inspiring for this collective challenge. If it's inspiration you need, it's inspiration I shall deliver, Emily. Let's see what we can do. Excellent. I think I've got a great option for you. And it's actually one that we heard about earlier in series two. Cast your mind back, if you can, to the core greenhouse gas removal event that we attended in spring 2022. Ah, yes. I was joining remotely for that one. Only COVID could keep me away from a carbon removal conference. (laughs) Yes, I was pleased at the time that you didn't just decide to come anyway. Of course, this meant that you weren't able to see the impressive venue on London's embankment. You may, though, remember hearing Steve Smith tell us why the location was so appropriate. We're here in central London, right by the River Thames on the Victoria Embankment. And that's a really interesting location for this event because it turns out the whole Victoria Embankment was built as part of the London sewer system in the 1800s. So it was one of the first waste cleanup operations of the industrial era. What was happening was that all the waste from the toilets of the people of London and all the waste from the industries was just flowing straight into the River Thames. And the river got in a really bad state. 
It was foul smelling. It was a source of disease and pollution. It became a bad habitat, you know, it was losing species. So a sewer network was built. And the Victoria embankment is actually a key part of that sewer. So with greenhouse gas removal, one way to think of it is we're cleaning up the greenhouse gas waste, which is accumulating in the atmosphere. Yeah, I loved this. Such a hopeful, if somewhat stinky, vision for carbon dioxide removal. It really helped me to realise that we have done equally ambitious things before. Obviously, Steve was talking about human waste, aka sewage, but we've also heard CDR being compared to garbage disposal and other forms of waste management. Hmm. For the purposes of this conversation, I am happy to stay waste inclusive, if you also are. All waste is welcome, in my book. All waste is welcome. So, at first glance, this analogy just seems to make sense. I might even be tempted to make the case that waste management isn't merely a good analogy for CDR, but that CDR is in fact an extension of our understanding of waste management. Over the past couple of centuries, we've found ways to deal with waste that we can see. Now we need to clean up the waste that's invisible and is building up in our atmosphere. It's all just like different kinds of waste products, right? Right. Waste management is also quite different to the technologies and industries that we've looked at so far. This isn't so much a story of single industry scaling up, it's more of a tale of how different values can drive different systems and how society has addressed a number of collective problems. Yeah, totally. We're a long way from smartphones now, Tom. So before large-scale waste management infrastructure, the disposal of waste often involved dumping, burning or chucking it into bodies of water. And unfortunately, in many places, it still can be the case. Yeah, I actually think it's really important to note that when we use waste management as an analogy here, we are in no way saying that waste management currently runs perfectly. It doesn't. And there's actually quite a lot of issues around it. But we have come a long way. And over the last couple of centuries, we have learned about the negative consequences of these types of disposal that I just mentioned. Today, it's easy to look at landfilling, recycling, composting, waste to energy technologies as just things that are there that exist. But the infrastructure required to manage them today was probably just as daunting and ambitious to those who lived before us as CDR really seems to be today. Yeah, I can totally imagine. I think I'd quite like to see a Victorian at a recycling centre. <laughs> yeah, that's one for the bingo card. Bit of a fish out of water situation there, I think. But yes, the consequence of this scale of infrastructure means that it's also complex and pricey. So governments have played a pretty leading role. Yes, the private sector is often involved, providing services or filling in the gaps, but this is generally, you know, first and foremost, a public project. Yeah, it would be hard to imagine sophisticated waste management developing in a way that didn't require significant public expenditure and oversight. Something that I think is really interesting here is that there have also been some major paradigm shifts in waste management. At first, it was principally about health. Later, there were concerns then about the environmental protection. And more recently, there's been a shift to getting more out of our waste resources. This idea that waste doesn't exist. These have generally been very positive, such as the move to recycle more or generate energy from our waste. But if we were to start again today with more knowledge, we might be able to build a better system for meeting all of our needs in a way that's efficient and sustainable and fair. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes me think that landfills initially must have seemed like a good solution. But now we recognise that simply like chucking your waste into a hole in the ground is problematic for very many reasons. 
And after all, CDR has the potential to deliver on everything you just mentioned. Public health, check. Environmental protection, big check. And even its use as a resource, think like biochar or BEX, check. But now I'm wondering what needs for our CDR infrastructure might we not be able to see yet? How can we try and anticipate these needs so that we don't look back in 100, 200 years time and say if we could do it all again, we'd do it differently? It's an eye opener to think that CDR may serve functions that we can't yet imagine if done well. Something that I've been thinking about is how many countries in the global north have been exporting their wastes to less economically developed countries. And that is still happening today and it's causing all sorts of health and environmental problems. So if nothing else, we need to be mindful that CDR doesn't repeat these patterns, I guess just shifting a problem to the global south rather than solving it. Yeah, totally agree. We need to avoid that. Okay, so Tom, for me, the biggest implication of this waste management analogy is the shift to thinking of a collective problem that needs collective action. Honestly, this is right up my street. You know, although I love being able to listen to podcasts on the go, I can't really call my smartphone a public good, can I? It's probably not something I'd expect the government to support or subsidise, despite my best efforts. But CDR really is. And I think the story of waste management just highlights that CDR can't rely on private sector goodwill alone. It shouldn't have to, in my opinion. I hear you. And I think that there are many benefits to this way of thinking that CO2 is a gaseous waste product, a semi-inevitable byproduct of modernity, and it should be a collective responsibility to clean up the mess. It definitely offers visions for how we might fund the development of CDR or even pay for its delivery. But many people are going to have concerns about shifting responsibility away from the polluter and towards the public. And I think we both probably have big questions about what this might mean. For instance, should CDR really be funded as much as waste management is through public taxation? Yeah, that's definitely an issue. Aside from questions of fairness and justice, it's also certainly not how the industry is developing at the moment, so would require a pretty major course change. But you also sort of hinted at another problem. When we say public, who exactly are we talking about? (laughs) Because where we are in the UK, the cost of household garbage disposal, for instance, is covered by taxation at a local level. And yes, while we know that waste often isn't confined to national borders, you know, think about ocean plastic pollution, it is generally dealt with locally or nationally. But atmospheric carbon never is or can be a purely local problem. If only it were that simple. A DAC plant or a biochar facility isn't providing its primary service to the people in its vicinity, even if it supports jobs or other industry. First and foremost, we need it to deliver on global goals. Global goals. Okay, Tom, let's go global. Ozone management. Sounds like a band from the noughties. It sounds like a noughties boy band's management team. Yeah, yes, yes. (laughs) They're like, I'm going to make you a star. (laughs) You're going to be huge. Definitely. Okay, so here's the pitch. Not only was this a collective solution to a true planetary problem, but it was also an urgent one and one that was unseen in the same way that carbon dioxide is. More than all that, it's also been very successful. 
Anyone who's like an older millennial or older than that will probably remember ozone depletion as this like existential threat. It was in the news a lot. These international efforts have been so effective that the ozone rarely gets mentioned these days. It's never a headline anymore. Yeah, it's kind of like it landed at number one. This is one hit wonder and then never followed up, which is a good thing, obviously. (laughs) Not for their management team. Moving on. So I'm sure we all know this, but just in case, ozone is a molecule composed of three oxygen atoms, O3, and it resides in the Earth's stratosphere. We call this the ozone, and it functions as the planet's natural sunscreen, absorbing ultraviolet solar radiation. Yes, it is pretty important for life on Earth. Yeah, no big, but pretty important for us all surviving. In the mid-1970s, though, scientists identified that ozone might be depleted by chemicals called (laughs) chlorofluorocarbon CFCs. These substances were used in fridges, aircon, fire extinguishers, and aerosols. So they were like kind of ubiquitous and pretty potent. Experts realised that loss of ozone in our stratosphere would lead to dangerous levels of UV radiation reaching the Earth's surface, resulting in increased skin cancer, eye problems, crop failure, and other consequences which, as you say, Tom, would be fairly catastrophic for life on Earth. Yes, it all sounded pretty terrifying. And it got worse, because in 1985, an ozone hole was first observed over Antarctica. This is the point in any disaster movie when they stick Bruce Willis in a spaceship and fire him up there, don't they? Yeah, Bruce Willis or Sandra Bullock or someone. But fortunately, international action was rapid. The Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer came in that same year, creating the framework to enable regulatory measures to combat the problem. This culminated in the Montreal Protocol, finalised in 1987 and coming into force in 1989, and that phased out the production and consumption of ozone-depleting substances. Incredibly, it was the first universally ratified UN treaty ever. Ever. That's pretty inspiring stuff. And it just shows that we can do climate action in a way that everyone signs up to. And it all happened so, so fast at least by international policy-making standards. And they didn't even have smartphones to help them out. Can you imagine? (laughs) They wouldn't have been able to hail an Uber ride to get to the convention. I know, everyone's going to Vienna and Montreal, and then they just have to find their way with a map. They don't have Google Maps. Honestly, I don't know how they're doing this. The initial agreement was to cut CFCs in half, but in 1990, this was revised to be a complete ban in developed countries by 2000 and in developing countries by 2010. This spurred investment in alternative technologies, which really enabled the whole transition. So policy nudging the market to solve the problem, increasingly ambitious targets over time, the bigger burden put on countries that could most afford it. I'm beginning to see why you like this one, Emily. Yep, I'm an early fan of this one, even before it was cool. You know, I was there. Basically, as a result of all this, scientists expect near-complete recovery of the ozone hole by the middle of this century. Okay, this is a pretty incredible example of worldwide collaboration to prevent disaster due to a pollutant. It's one of those rare things, a truly large-scale, feel-good climate story, and I love it in a lot of ways. But although it presents a brilliant aspiration for CDR to follow, I think there are a few pretty fundamental differences. Come on, hit me, Timothy. Okay, firstly, this was a mitigation action. 
if anything, it's probably more useful as an analogy for decarbonisation than it is perhaps for CDR in this obvious respect. Yes, I will concede that one. We risk confusing things if we start thinking of CDR in these terms. Sort of undoes the work of the almighty bathtub, OG, analogy. Also, these pollutants were relatively niche and relatively easy to stop polluting. The reason we haven't been able to decarbonise to anywhere near the same degree as we've phased out CFCs is that so much of our economy and tech is built on carbon and the alternatives have taken just a lot longer to develop and scale. Yeah, I think that's right. Carbon is obviously a much bigger challenge to us than CFCs. It's just everywhere. But more than anything, ozone management isn't an industry per se. It's really a series of modifications and innovations in existing industries. I'm no expert, but it seems, theoretically, quite simple to ban something. It's much harder to ask the world to do something brand new. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you there. Very clearly, scaling CDR is a different kind of challenge to phasing out CFCs. I have been inspired though, and I'm still going to use this story of ozone management as an example of what we can do as a world when we put our minds to something. Yeah, no, totally. Thanks for bringing this one on. So, we've got time for one more analogy, and I'm going to hand the floor to you, Tom. Can you do any better? The final stop on our analogy tour. As a reminder, the challenge is to find an example of a rapidly scaled solution to an urgent global problem. Something that required global action, saw massive technological innovation alongside public sector support, and created something entirely new for the greater good. Seems doable, right? (laughs) Yes, what could that be? Have you been sleeping under a rock for the last four years? As it happens, yes, actually. (laughs) I have been under a rock for quite a bit of the last four years, so please enlighten me. Emily, I offer you the COVID vaccine programme. Well played. Give me a pitch. Sell it to me. Okay, so it's worth saying up top that we're not talking about a particular country's rollout of such vaccines. What we are talking about really is the global effort to develop, trial, scale and supply a whole new fleet of vaccines to billions of people in less time than it takes us to put out a season of this podcast. We're talking (laughs) scale and speed. Things got personal there, Tom. Bit of shaming on the pod. But yeah, it was super impressive in very many ways. We've been talking about inspiring people and I think this really provided hope for a lot of people at the time and it was such a bleak time. So I'm already seeing some of the strengths. Totally. And I I think it's worth putting the achievement into context really because that's what makes it even more incredible. So as you probably all know, most vaccines take years and years to develop. And prior to this, the fastest vaccine development from a sort of viral sampling to approval had been for months, which was in the 1960s, and that took four years. In contrast, the Pfizer vaccine that was approved in the US took around a year after the COVID-19 virus was first identified. Yeah, that's lightning speed. So how did they do it? How did they get that done so quickly? That's a big question with a complex answer, Emily, but let's try and cover some of the headlines. First off, the scientists behind these vaccines were building on an extensive knowledge base that had been built up for maybe 50 odd years. They had an understanding of the previous coronaviruses and vaccine development work for these viruses to use as a starting point. 
Then, once the disease was identified, scientific expertise piled in, knowledge was shared, and the research was expedited. Meanwhile, processes for clinical trials were fairly well defined, so these programs could be run in parallel effectively, rather than taking place over several years, and there really were plenty of eager volunteers to take part. All of this was able to happen in large part due to the widespread recognition of the urgency of the situation. Yeah, urgency was really clear throughout the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. There were high costs, both in terms of lives and health, and the financial impact on individuals, businesses and whole economies. Daily life for billions of people changed almost overnight, And that really helped put us on that disaster footing and rally collective action. Not really a nice way to do it, but it really helped. So as we can imagine, early development and initial clinical trials of a vaccine are going to be multi-million dollar projects. Everyone at the time therefore knew that money, both public and private, was going to be necessary. And because of this sense of urgency, high expenditure was widely seen as justified. In places, government took on the financial risk so companies could produce and stockpile doses before even knowing if the vaccines were going to work. And this really meant that scale was built into the development process. Yeah, I remember production capacity being scaled before these vaccines were widely available on the understanding that they soon would be. It's obviously a risky endeavour in normal circumstances, but it's necessary if you're going to shave as much time as possible off that delivery time. And to spread the risk, governments tended to adopt a portfolio approach. We've heard that before. We love a portfolio approach. Exactly. Backing lots of different vaccine techniques and developers simultaneously, knowing that some would fail, but hoping that others would succeed. And it paid off. As we know, some of these vaccines never made it beyond early stage trials, but several are still widely used today. For the developers too, there was a real incentive. The hope was a product that would have truly global uptake for potentially many, many years ahead, hundreds of millions or even billions of doses. If they could develop a good product, it seemed like they'd be able to sell it. It all makes so much sense in retrospect, but at the time, it obviously seemed like a huge and daunting task. I can't even imagine. I guess it's another example of what is possible when urgency is really there. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from with this example. There's been a lot of talk about this already, but for various reasons, the climate crisis isn't usually afforded that same level of urgency. For starters, we're talking about something with a slightly longer time frame, really decades as opposed to months or years. And even though viruses themselves are invisible, their effects are tangible and they spread from person to person. Climate change, on the other hand, is just that little bit harder to grasp and it feels just that little bit further off. Yeah, I relate to that. And I don't think this is a criticism of the vaccine analogy. If anything, it shows why it might be apt. Because we know that the climate crisis is urgent. We just need to communicate that more effectively. And I think there's plenty of parallels between how the vaccine program operated and how we might be seeing or might hope to see how the CDR world develops. For instance, governments pre-purchasing doses to fund development isn't a million miles away from some of the large advanced purchases we've seen in the CDR world that are helping to fund that capex on more novel methods and projects. We know this worked in the vaccine program, and we can also see it helping get these carbon removal projects off the ground. Likewise, that recognition of the need to build production capacity and infrastructure from the start, that's going to be super vital to rapidly scaling CDR. Yes. 
And it strikes me that we might also be able to learn from some of the vaccine program's failures. And please don't think I'm undermining its amazing achievement. But we all know that it wasn't entirely smooth sailing, whatever is, you know? So for instance, the consequence of all those pre-purchases was that richer nations had a real stranglehold on the early doses of vaccine. This unequal access just didn't make sense from a global health perspective. And organisations like the WHO warned about its consequences. Yeah, and there's maybe not an obvious direct parallel for that in the CDR world, but we know that equity is a huge deal here. Just as an example, we really can't be in a position where wealthy nations can afford to use CDR to offset business as usual emissions, for example, while others are unable to fund it to offset their hard to abate emissions. Totally. We definitely want to avoid that. And finally, I think there's something to be said here about public perceptions. Something we touch on quite a lot. The vaccine had a generally high uptake, but there was also a real lack of trust about it as something novel, and particularly because it was rapidly rolled out. CDR is different to a vaccine, but in many cases, it's still going to be something new and different and hard to explain. I guess it just serves as a warning. You can't take the public for granted if you want buy-in, and you really have to ensure you're effectively communicating to earn their trust. Yeah, no, I very much agree. So, Emily, does the vaccine programme win this analogy race? I think it's a good candidate. It's got a lot going for it. But here's the thing. As with the ozone management analogy, I think this comes down to the fact that these aren't entire industries, you know? Like, yes, they're super impressive, but they haven't had to build entirely new infrastructure and markets and supply chains from the ground up, you know, starting from nothing and building from there. Yeah, we have had vaccines for generations and we've had a health infrastructure to deliver them, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I accept your point. But where does that then leave us? I don't think we've come across a perfect analogy for CDR. And I'm willing to accept that maybe there isn't one. If, listeners, you think there is one and we haven't mentioned it in this podcast, please reach out to us and let us know because it would be amazing if we had better analogies than the ones we've touched on. But I'm still a fan of analogies in general because I do think that the use of comparisons in this way really sort of like triggers our imagination and makes us think, oh, it is a bit like that and maybe we can create something a bit like that but even a bit better and like you can sort of mix and match. You remember the Uber example was like a bit of this with a bit of that and a bit of the other. It's like ingredients to create our own perfect analogy, which I think is what we need to take away. Yeah, I do think that there are ingredients for a recipe of the perfect analogy, which perhaps leans on the forward-thinking policy changes that happened for the ozone piece, as well as the public and private investment from the vaccine rollout programs. So I do think that there are bits to take from all of these. What I'm excited for Mm. and hopeful for is the day when people look at the CDR industry and start using that as an analogy for scaling some other industry. That's going to be an exciting time if or when that ever happens. Oh my gosh, I am now also very excited about that. (laughs) Maybe in the future people will play this episode and be like, look, these guys were just talking about how we want to scale CDR and now look at us. How amazing would that be? But I think you make a good point, Don, because what we've been saying throughout this whole podcast, every single episode, really, is that what we're doing is really hard. There isn't really a path that's already laid for this. We have to make our own. 
And maybe it will be that people look back on the growth of this industry and think, wow, that had never been done before and now it's been done, which from a future retrospective perspective feels amazing. But from where we're stood right now, still having to do it all, (laughs) it's pretty overwhelming. And I hope that maybe some of these analogies can help people feel a little less overwhelmed by it all. See the many possibilities, you know? I also think if somebody just like, for some reason, didn't listen to this episode from the beginning and came in halfway through and we were talking about like bathtubs and Uber, they'd be like, what? I thought this is the carbon removal show. What are they on about? I kind of love that. On the subject of episodes, we will be back early in the new year with some very exciting content. Yes, starting with an episode that looks back on everything that happened in carbon removal in 2023. Every single thing. We're not going to miss anything out. It's going to be the most comprehensive episode we have ever done of the Carbon Removal Show. Whatever happened to under-promise and (laughs) (laughs) over-deliver? I'm over-promising and we're going to deliver. We're going to over-promise and over-deliver. I'm going to have a busy Christmas period, aren't I then? (laughs) It's going to be busy over Christmas. No break for us. We've got to review the whole of this year. I'm excited. So that's something to look forward to for 2024. Enjoy your little winter rest in the meantime and we'll see you then. Until next time. Bye-bye. Big thank you to everyone who makes this show possible. Our researcher and fact-checker, Henry Irvine. Our graphic designer, Reke Campbell. Our composer, Sam Carter. Our producer, Ben Weaver-Hinks. And our executive producer, Sam Floyd. I've been Emily Swaddle. And I've been Tom Praviti. Thank you so much for listening. If we could ask you to do two favours, please hit that subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening and give us a rating. It really helps. And if you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, please do ask this favour and share it with a friend or a colleague. You can find us online at thecarbonremovalshow.com. We're on LinkedIn as The Carbon Removal Show and we're on Twitter or X as Restored CC. See you next time.